Hello survivors and welcome to First Aid Spray, a Resident Evil podcast by fans for fans. This is episode 48 and in this edition we dust off the latest tome in SD Perry's Chronicles of Biohazard. This is Book Club, Resident Evil Underworld. My name is Cy and joining me on the panel this week, no vampires, no werewolves and no Kate Beckinsale in sight for this underworld, but forget all of that, we have Moist Owlet aka James. Nice. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Sneaking behind enemy lines to use their Wi-Fi because talk talk is hot garbage. It's fire button Steve Valance. Uh, there goes that sponsorship deal. Uh, hello. And waiting in the shadows for his evil scheme to take effect, except replace evil scheme with guest appearance and to take effect with on a very specific episode that he chose. From Nerd Masons, it's Mike Martin. Hey, man, I could suddenly go for a brandy right about now. <laughs> Every episode of First Aid Spray is recorded live on our Discord server, so join now to hear the show early and unedited and to become part of our fantastic little community where we discuss life, the universe, and Resident Evil. You can find a link to the server as well as all of our social media profiles at our website, fasprepod.com. It's the support of our listeners that keeps First Aid Spray going, so why not check out our merchandise or our Patreon page. Tiers begin at just $1 a month. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Pod for a full list and a chance to create bonus first aid spray content. Housekeeping at the top, some special thank yous. We've got some new patrons recently, so a very big thank you to Legatron and a very big thank you to Jacob Ramsey. And a thank you to all of our patrons for continuing to show their love and show their support for first aid spray. Um... We got some news coming. We got some very patron specific news coming. Um, in the meantime, the now that's what I call survival horror episode for Resident Evil Zero is still patron exclusive, and it probably will be for another month or so at this rate. So, if you want to hear us uh, show and specifically pick his top ten tracks from that soundtrack, and he and I go through that, uh, it's a great episode. So, would recommend doing that. In the meantime. Uh, publicly we dropped a new youtube video new law video it's been a while looking at umbrella's militia so that breaks down sort of what we know of the history and the formation and the background and the purpose of the ubcs aka carlos nikolai and that kind of group and the uss such as hunk Uh, and also somewhat unexpectedly i think we are now on tiktok so if you've got the clock app uh, search for FA Spray Pod on TikTok and follow us there as well. We've been dropping some podcast highlights and video highlights and stuff like that at the moment. Um, yeah, just looking for a way to use that platform a little bit more in the future. So if you're on TikTok, why not follow us there as well? Let's circle back around to our guest, Mr. Mike Martin. Um, back in spring, summer 2020, we uh, put together Resident Evil The Beginning, which was our audio drama adaption of Biohazard the Beginning, aka Resident Evil the Book, uh, which released on YouTube exclusively. If you haven't watched that, by the way, uh, you should absolutely go and seek it out. It's probably, it's absolutely the most unique thing that's on our channel, I would say. Um, And that wouldn't have come together without Mike and his group over at Nerd Masons. And when we had that kind of collaboration going on, it was always our intent to get Mike on the podcast. And he specifically chose this episode, wanted to talk about this book, We'll probably talk about why that is when we get to it. But in the meantime, I want to go right back. Um, I I know we had you on before to talk about sort of how Resident Evil Beginning came to be. I don't remember if I asked this question. Though, and everyone already knows what, what I'm going to ask. It's my favorite thing to ask. Uh, Mike, what's your first experience with Resident Evil? What game brought you into this series and what made you fall in love with it? It's funny. I, I knew you were going to ask the question. And uh, every story that question. I hear from people... <laughs> 
everybody says the same thing, right? Uh, they were at a friend's house. They were at a brother's uh, location, whatever. Uh, but when I was in high school, this was uh, in the late 90s. I was at a friend's house, and uh, he said, you want to play PlayStation? I was like, yeah, sure, totally. And uh, so he pulls out uh, his catalog of games, and Resident Evil was uh, one of the ones that caught my eye. And so we played the game for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, just to the point where the uh, dogs jumped through the window. Uh, spoiler. And um, so he ends up going on vacation and asks if I want to borrow his PlayStation. So, of course, I wanted to borrow his PlayStation. I didn't have one at the time. So I take his PlayStation home, and uh, all I did was play Resident Evil the entire time I had it. Uh, the trouble is that his PlayStation had uh, a defect where the laser uh, couldn't read the entire disc. So I only got to play the mansion over and over and over uh, <laughs> to the point where I was like speed running it. I knew where all the herbs were and all the items and everything. And um, finally, on the last day before he's coming home, uh, I found out how to fix the laser. Uh, so I was able to actually get beyond the mansion, not much further. Uh, but shortly thereafter, I ended up going out buying a PlayStation and uh, Resident Evil was the first game uh, that I ended up buying. So anyway, that was my, uh, my introduction. That's why I asked the question, because you say everyone's story's very similar, but then you get to a certain point where somebody's got something weird like that, you know, <laughs> or something really unique. You must have had, it must have been very strange to suddenly be in brand new territory, and, you know, like the game must have flipped back onto the scary side again, because you're in a complete unknown situation after getting to know the mansion so well. It was right when uh, uh, Brad calls in on the radio and you get that static and then it would just mm. completely shut off. And I was like, come on, what does he say? What's going on? And I, you know, <laughs> it was very frustrating to not get beyond that point. But uh, man, it was wild to get uh, through that, get to the caves and the guardhouse, et cetera. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, Nerd Mason's obviously a group that we worked with previously, hugely talented bunch of guys. Um, I'll drop obviously a link to uh, Nerd Mason's in the podcast description, but is there anything you guys are working on that you can tease us about? Because uh, I know it's been a little bit quiet recently. Well, this last year was uh, actually very wild. Um, Camo, who did all of the sound effects on uh, the beginning, uh, ended up putting out a, a movie last year with uh, the Russo brothers. So uh, <laughs> that's why we've been that's quiet. Awesome. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, it, it was part of their contest. Uh, it's called uh, Big City, Little Italy. And he went around to all the little Italy's across uh, America and, uh, you know, just talked to, you know, local business owners and stuff like that. And uh, it was a really cool documentary. Um, and, and then I actually uh, published a novel in November. So uh, it's pretty cool that uh, I just got that published. And now here I am talking about SD Perry, uh, you know, one of my favorite authors. So. That's awesome. I wish I had asked you that question before coming on air. <laughs> That's cool. What's the name of the book? Tell us a little bit about it before we move on. Uh, it's called The uh, Cheshire Catastrophe, and um, it, it's kind of like Indiana Jones meets Hallmark Channel. Um, <laughs> it, it, I had just got done playing um, the, um, uh, what the heck is it? The Uncharted series, and right. uh, so I, it has very strong Uncharted vibes from it. So if you like that, by all means, uh, check it out. It's on uh, Amazon. Awesome. That's super cool. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to uh, a rather short version of the biohazard news. So our one piece of news this week is that Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City is now available on demand digitally and the 4K Steelbook has been revealed. Yeah, um, I, I, it came out digitally. It was a weird one, wasn't it? Like, right, let's let's cycle right back. When we talked about the film, it was already kind of like it's weird because it's only showing in so many places, and 
very few times in some circumstances. It wasn't in cinemas very long. Very soon after, you could rent it online. Um, and as of a few days ago, the January the 18th, you can now purchase it online, uh, I believe, uh, digital versions. And the physical release is scheduled for February the 8th. So it's very nearly in homes if you're going to pre-order it or purchase it. Um, it's one of those things where I haven't rewatched it since my one cinema experience. I feel like perhaps I should. There's, you know, a ton of Easter eggs and stuff in there that I perhaps have missed. And I'd be interested in some of the special features and stuff. Um, Mike, how do you feel about it? Did you see Welcome to Raccoon City yet? Are you interested in picking up a, a copy? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I did go to the movies to see it, and um, I really want to take my son to see it. Well, not to the movies to see it, but to uh, mm. I, I want my son to see it because he's a massive Resident Evil fan. Uh, watching the movie felt like I was playing the game on a range mode. Like they had all the pieces, it just didn't fit together the way I thought it should, but um, it, it was enjoyable. Uh, James, any interest in picking up a, a physical version of this? Hey, that that was that was nice to hear that somebody else enjoyed the the movie because I also <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, mm. But um, I won't be getting physical. I don't buy anything physical anymore. Oh, I I, I, I realize this when I ask it. It's not really yeah. something that you tend to do. But yeah, like I don't listen. I don't have a DVD player. I don't have a Blu-ray player. Like I think the only one I have is on my laptop, and I only use that to watch Aliens. So. <laughs> Like <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> so no, okay. yeah, I'll just yeah, I won't get the physical. I do like the look of the steel book. Um, I hope it does well. But yeah, physical is kind of on its way out. But might, that might be a, a hot take. I'm not sure. Oh, um, I'm, I'm, it's one of those things where you, we're in an era now where people are very selective about these kind of things. And looking at the artwork, and it comes with these like flashy art cards and stuff. Like as a collector or whatever, that might be nice to have. I I don't buy a lot of physical films certainly not um really at all but i don't know it's resident evil i might be kind of interested to to own a blu-ray copy of this just because you know my shelves are already full of resident evil so why not a little bit more it looks nice uh, steve any interest in this uh, i'll finally be able to go and see the film yeah. uh, <laughs> that's true <laughs> do it uh, does uh, wesker have a handgun or a flashlight gun on the uh, cover i'm it's, sure it's... Uh, he doesn't have any gun at all i think on the cover um the uh, is it still the flashlight that's like the the laser of the gun or have has been sawn yeah, off they basically just, yeah. cut the gun part out and he's just got the lasers out, which looks like a really weird <laughs> torch and they edited all the blood off it's a very weird situation so that's what makes the sort of steelbook even nicer because it's got the the umbrella in front of the RPD artwork rather than this weird bodged version of the poster. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll I'll definitely be picking it up just so I can you know say I've seen. Yeah, it. that's fair. Um, the uh, it's it's weird. I'm just thinking about how they uh, they censored that gun, and, and now I'm thinking of '90s Yu-Gi-Oh. Early 2000s, you go with the invisible guns. But anyway, I feel like I'm going to get sidetracked. <laughs> don't, don't open that one because I'll start talking about Pokemon censorship. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's Donut. <laughs> yeah, that too. All right. <laughs> Stop myself from getting wildly off track. Uh, let's get on to the main subject of this podcast, which is a return to book club with Resident Evil Underworld. And now, reading excerpts from S.D. Perry's Resident Evil Underworld. Samantha Morris, aka Peralt, who you can find on Twitter at Peralt is Gaming. Hang on! John screamed, and Claire pushed her legs against the van wall. Saw David grab hold of Rebecca, Leon snatching at the handle. 
and the van was screeching, jerking and bucking like a wild horse, spinning sideways. And Claire actually felt open space beneath the right side of the van as her body was compressed to the left, the back of her neck crunching painfully against the tyre well. Oh, hell. David shouted something, but Claire didn't hear it over the squealing brakes. Didn't understand until David dove to the right, Rebecca scrambling right next to him. And wham! The van dropped back down to the ground with a terrific bounce, and John seemed to have it under control again. But there was still the piercing screech of locked brakes coming from... Crash! The explosion of metal and shattering glass behind them was so close that Claire's heart skipped a beat. She turned, looked out of the back with the others, and saw that one of the cars had barreled into a roadside barricade. A barricade they'd probably come within a second or two of bashing into themselves. She caught just a glimpse of a crumpled hood, of broken windows, and a stream of oily smoke. And then the second sedan was blocking her view, shrieking around the corner and continuing the chase. Sorry about that, John called back to them, sounding anything but. He seemed wired with adrenaline-pumped glee. In the few weeks since she and Leon had joined up with the fugitive ex-stars, she discovered that John would make jokes about anything. It was simultaneously his most endearing and most annoying traits. Everyone all right? David asked, and Claire nodded, saw Rebecca do the same. Took a whack, but I'm okay, Leon said, rubbing his arm with a pained expression. But I don't think. Bam! Whatever Leon didn't think was cut off by the powerful blast that slammed into the back of the van. Still, most of a block away, the sedan's passenger had fired a shotgun at them a few inches higher and the pellets would have come in through the window. John, change of plan, David called as the van swerved, his cool, authoritative voice rising over the noise of the screaming engines. So Resident Evil Underworld, first published apparently in 1999. Again, with all of our book club episodes, it's unfortunate that it's kind of difficult to find very specific kinds of information. Uh, I mean, the internet's great for cataloging certain types of information, but uh, book adaptions of video games in the late 90s, you're not really going to get sales figures and uh, very precise release dates. Um, but apparently, and this is true of the inside of the book, but it, it was in 99 somewhere, sometime, um, Somewhere told me it was May, but also somewhere also told me that City of the Dead came out in May, which is the previous book. So unless she wrote two at once and dumped them both at the same time, I don't know what to believe. But regardless of that, it was released between Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3. This much we can be sure of. Um, it is the final book that, as far as we were aware, that S.T. Perry was first commissioned for. That's the information that we have. Four books, two adaptions and two originals. Uh, it also makes it the final original story in the series. Uh, Mike, I'm going to start off with you because we've all kind of told our first experiences with the S.T. Perry novels in general. But what was your in entry to not just the Perry verse, as we like to call it, but specifically this book as well? Uh, so I started with uh, The Umbrella Conspiracy and um, I got that shortly after it came out. 
And I enjoyed it so much that I, I kept going back to Barnes and Noble like uh, weekly to try and see if any new books had come out because nice. uh, I, th I think they did come out really close to each other. Mm. Um, and specifically Underworld, I got that very shortly after it came out. I, I just don't remember, you know, exactly which month it came out. Um, but it, it was very different than the other books that she'd written. And um, specifically compared to Caliban Cove, it was just a a very enjoyable idea that she had. And I really enjoyed the way that the story was written. You're right. You know, the first book, as far as we know, came out in 98. So that's four books in two years, regardless of what month they came out. And it's, it, it's, it's a pretty breakneck speed. You know, we've done four of these episodes. This will be the fourth episode of this. And we're still only into the second year, <laughs> which is funny to think about. Um, Steve, you talked about picking up the books um, back in the day, but any particular uh, memories of Underworld? Uh, the only, uh, I'm, I'm, it's struggling to think back then, but I think it was something lines of, is this canon? Is it not canon? I don't remember this game. Is it a side game? You know, that, 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 that level of stupidity from me. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I think it was just a case of like, like the rest. I just picked them all up as going into Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, not, not the most exciting story other than Steve's stupidity. Shocker. <laughs> Again, pre-internet days, you don't actually know what Resident Evil games exist or not, I guess, you know. Exactly. There was, there was no Wikipedia. Um, yeah, I had this. This is the first time I've touched this one. You know, same with Caliban Cove, um, and James. I already know. Obviously, this is brand new for you as well. So yeah. let's move on to talking about the covers. Um, I have located four different cover arts. You can easily Google any of these images. I should think to talk about. Um, uh, so let's start with the original. Uh, well, let's talk about the original and the reissue because I know that's something you know we've done it multiple times. Um, James, what are your thoughts? <laughs> we already kind of I've, I've got a good prediction what your thoughts are going to be comparing the the reissue to the original. Uh, but these are the two English versions at least. So, what are your thoughts on the on the covers? So the the reissue is the second one you posted, right? Yes, it's the one that looks like all the other reissues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh boy. Yeah. So that second issue is trash. Um, but the the first one I really like. Um, it kind of kind of gives you a really good idea of like it gives me it gives me resistance vibes, which I'm going to go into more later on, right? But um, yeah, that's fair actually. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's cool. You know, yeah, it's it's cool. I would I would have liked to see a more um, because it's mentioned like 50 times a blue shirt <laughs> on the. Yeah. Uh, I'm the right. man in the suit. It's it's just about kind of a blue shine. I'll give it that much. But... <laughs> um, you must really like this cover because it's green. <laughs> um, Funny enough, it's, that's one of my notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this second one, like you can see what they've they've tried to do. You know, they're they're just they're trying to keep consistency, and it's like you know, I feel like with books. The only consistency, it's like comics, like volumes and comics, the only consistency you need to keep is the spine of the book. Mm. Like, you don't really need, like, consistency in terms of the cover. And even then, it just, like, it just looks like they've, you know, they've done a perspective piece in the background, like, on, on GIMP, and then they've slapped Leon and Claire on the front, you know, and it just doesn't look great. I, it's just, you know... I hadn't hadn't noticed it until this one specifically. But what's even worse about this sort of like city flying by stuff is just the top of it, the way it just kind of ends. Like somebody's <laughs> used a fill tool and it's just kind of like collided with the image in bizarre ways. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's what, terrible, what, isn't it? And what does that have to do with a book? 
Nothing. Like, it's the nothing here tells you anything about the story of the book. Oh, sure, Leon and Clara are in it. Um, but yeah, nothing here says to me underworld. Like I, I don't read anything from the cover of this book. Mm. Um, and what's this third one? That's a really cool looking. Well, one. we'll we'll get on to the. We got a couple of other uh, non-English covers to talk about. Let's let's okay. Uh, stick with the. The classic, I, th- I mean, yeah, completely agree with you. The original is best. Because there's consistency in the original run as well. You know, the titles are all in the same font. Mm-hmm. You've got this little biohazard triangle with a number in on each book, uh, on each spine. Uh, that's that's as much as you need. Um, I like, again, like this, it's got a, re- a mix of original art and stuff like that. Um, Steve, how do, you, how do you feel about how superior the original is to the reissue? <laughs> I say, um, holding the physical one in my hand, I can say under natural light that he's definitely wearing a blue oh, suit. Let's go. Uh, just, just to add to you know the uh, the confusion as to whether that's Trent or Reston. Uh, generally, I think it's a much stronger cover overall for all the reasons we already said. That and it covers, you know, it's probably not one to one with what SD Perry fully envisions. At least in, in my mental image of this control room is not what's seen yeah. here, but I can see what they're going for. Generally, aesthetically pleasing, lots of colour, and as we've said, it's uniform to its other brethren. Uh, the second variant, the the uh, the reissue cover is, uh, as we've already established, hot garbage. Even more so when you think that Volume Three, which was Resident Evil Two, you know, as in you know, City of the mm. Dead, had just zombies on the cover for the renders, and this one's the one with Leon and Claire in their RE2 slash Darkside Chronicles slash whatever. Costumes. I feel like these could have been switched around if this book had something it doesn't, which is zombies. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was say that. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I'll never understand the, the, this idea that just slapping a render on it will sell it. But then again, we had that with the uh, the old box art episodes, didn't we? Where a reissue of a game, uh, particularly in the Japanese territories, normally would just feature the characters front mm. and center. Here's a render. Bam, mm. done. Um, they just look a bit naff. Trying not to swear is hard. <laughs> uh, Mike, what's your preference? Are you going to change our minds? What's your preference? Do you like the reissue at all, or is your preference with the original release? Preference is definitely with the original one. Um, it, you know, I was looking at the uh, cover, and uh, we know that that's supposed to be resting because of the you know the blue suit on the uh, broken umbrella. But you, you know, based on the story, you would think that that might be uh, Trent on there. Uh, but the whole time I'm, I'm looking at the cover, I'm looking at these cameras, and I'm like, how the heck did they get that angle? Is it like body cam footage? I mean, look at that Cerberus uh, right under the number four. Look how close that is. That looks like the uh, video from RE1 where, uh, who's it, Forrest is getting uh, tuned up? Yeah. No, it's literally just a mix of actual artwork and previous covers, isn't it? Which is fine. Like, it's it's used cleverly enough. But yeah, in the... Uh, the Misty's there. Yeah. yeah. I would say on the reissue, it's uh, it's Claire is uh, not exactly a major role in this book, so uh, mm. having her on the cover, I don't know that that was the uh, best choice. But it does remind me of uh, you know the other reissues of either games, or um, if you think about like the scary stories to tell in the dark books, they they reissued those uh, covers, and those were trash compared to the originals as well. Mm. Yeah, not not all that surprising, really, is it? Uh, the more effort went into the originals. Yeah, you know, the only thing that I don't particularly like about the original, and as James pointed out, not just because it's green, green good, but, like, it gives it another identi- its own identity compared to the previous releases. 
Like it's an, it's another nice new color scheme, which I do like. But as Steve pointed out, there's a zombie on one of those screens when there's no zombies in the book. And also, are they trying to make some sort of statement about Reston's weight? Because he's standing on this umbrella with all these cracks underneath it. Is that... <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that was a little bit weird. I know, you know, obviously they're going for sort of a, a bit more of a thematic thing there, maybe implying Trent, but uh, <laughs> it he, like he, a fat joke to me. He three-point landed in, that's what happened. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if you do a Google for Resident Evil Underworld covers specifically, um, you can find a couple of other ones. And I found that we talked a little bit about uh, other regions covers in previous episodes. And again, we found uh, an Italian version and a Japanese version. Now, the Italian version is, uh, and again, I would say, you know, do a Google of these, but this one's fairly self-explanatory. You have, I think that is literally Resident Evil 3 artwork zombie. Um standing in front of a half-transparent uh, umbrella logo. You know, it's it's fine. It's a similar thing where I think all of the Italian books probably look like this in some form with a different already pre-existing artwork just plonked in. Again, the question is, why a zombie when there's no zombies in this book at all? Um, but I think we're all probably going to be fairly praiseworthy that Japan, when it, when it, when it finally got the book had some original artwork on this. Uh, Mike, any thoughts on these uh, non-English speaking artworks? I, I really like the text in the third one. The typography looks really good. That, mm. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Japanese one, I think, is very accurate to the uh, book. Um, so, yeah, I really like that, the, that it's got original artwork in there. That looks really nice. You get to see John in the background there as well. You get to see a visual of what that artist's interpretation. He looks a bit too much like a cross between Tyrell and Morpheus from how I imagined him, but uh, it's all, not Morpheus from The Matrix, not Morpheus D. Duval. Um, Steve, thoughts on the Japanese and Italian covers? The Italian cover just screams artwork, not final. <laughs> um, I mean, just to, just to slap a RE3 CGI zombie, I mean, you've already said, but there's no zombies in it, so it's just rare. I'm guessing they did them all as a full set, and that's just what that uh, Yeah, probably. Um, and uh, lo and behold, Leon on the cover of a thing called Resident Evil 4. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shocker. No, I mean, honestly, I think it looks fantastic. And the fact that, as, as has been said, we get a little bit of a view of John, who I would argue is perhaps the most central of the protagonists in this one. Mm. Um, if not these, like, you know, he's more so than certain characters who we'll get into, I'm sure. Interesting. Uh, yeah, solid. Like it. I, uh, you know, where, where's that manhwa adaption that's all like over the top and someone goes Super Saiyan, etc. Et <laughs> uh, James, any thoughts on these non-English covers? Uh, yeah, not much more than he said about the third one. Like, I, yeah, the typeface is nice, um, but that's about it, really. Because, um, again, it doesn't tell you what's in the book. <laughs> um, but this, God, this fourth one, Man, they should put this Leon in games. Look at this Leon. I love him. Um, but yeah, I I love this. I that's a like that's a piece of art that you stick on your wall. You know, mm. it's really nice. And yeah, again, lovely to see John in the back there because I agree with Steve. He's such an integral part of this game. Yeah. of this uh, of this book. Um, I would have liked him because I, I feel like SD Perry might have been in love with John a little bit because like whew, she went real hard on you know his muscles and everything just like he's a big boy you know and like I, yeah it would have been nice to see more of that but yeah otherwise like this cover is beautiful love it cool 
Right, well, let's move from the cover to the inside of the book. Let's talk about the plot sort of setup of Resident Evil Underworld, which takes place after the events of uh, Raccoon City, which is interesting in that, again, and S.T. Perry really is only working with the information that she's been given in games up to that point, which we know a hell of a lot more about the Raccoon City incident since. But in 99, uh, she's just sort of working, bouncing off that as best she can. So in, in her version of events, which is quite interesting, uh, there's you know reports that the Raccoon City incident was really just a bunch of fires that tore through the town. Um, and Stars and Chief Irons, uh, I think perhaps most interesting, is sort of implicated in an accidental spill of chemicals. And Umbrella basically sells them out um, to protect themselves, which I think is really clever, obviously, with Irons being on their payroll. Um, I actually really, again, I, I love some of the ideas that she comes up with, given the time period that this was written in. Um, she really does kind of think logically about where the series could have gone or sort of the reactions that certain characters would have had in that example. Um, but basically, we have all the characters, bar Chris, Jill and Barry, who have already left, um, but everyone heading towards Europe to take down, you know, it's up to us to take out Umbrella. Uh, we encounter Trent, who basically says, you need to go to Southwest America to an underground lab in the Salt Flats of Utah to find Umbrella's little black book for a bunch of information that could basically cripple them. Uh, and that is the plot setup. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you because you very specifically wanted to come on and talk about Underworld. Um, so I have to assume that you're you're a fan of either you're a fan of it or you absolutely hate it. I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, how do you feel about the sort of without really getting deep into the weeds of you know the resolutions and stuff? How do you feel about the plot setup of the book? I, I really love the setup of you know it's an it's an underground lair which we have never heard of before in Resident Evil. And um, <laughs> <All since>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that it, it hasn't yet gone online, and this is their opportunity to uh, really get something valuable, uh, and they have to strike now or they're not going to. So, so the argument that um, that Trent makes, I thought, was uh, pretty valid in getting them to uh, you know turn the plane around. Um, up until this point, uh, we'd heard Trent as the um, you know Perry's. Uh, original character and i wasn't sure what was going to happen with this character i didn't really uh like him uh from the beginning in uh, umbrella conspiracy where he's giving out maps and whatnot um uh, but i started to understand that character a little bit more so i thought uh perry did a good job with that yeah i certainly didn't expect him to kind of show up in the way that he did early in the book and just sort of present himself in front of characters because from what i heard about him being sort of this like mysterious dsx machina kind of thing i was like well that's kind of what's going to happen in every book, what we've had so far, just a little bit of background tinkering. But uh, yeah, him just kind of, yeah, just appearing in front of everyone and being like, hey guys, you should go do this. And then, um, you know, magically disappearing afterwards was kind of interesting. And obviously we get a lot more than that uh, towards the end of the book. Uh, Steve, how do you feel about the plot setup of Underworld? I like how it's a bit in media res, isn't it? Because the second that you've gone past the little prologue news clippings, they're in a car chase being hunted by, you know, some umbrella mercs or the police on a payroll or whatever, and it's a, it's a bit pacey. And then, obviously, you have the plane ride with the magician that is Mr. Trent. <laughs> uh, I thought it was okay. It felt almost like somewhere between a Charlie's Angel-style spy thing or a heist being planned. Mm. Uh, and 
the fact that it seemed that the characters were still true to themselves. I could, I could, I could like hear the '90s renditions of, say, you know, Leon and Claire, mm-hmm. uh, and especially the fact that just hearing the inner thoughts of John wanted to rip this mysterious man in a suit in half was kind of funny. Um, you know, maybe it's just my predilection towards violence. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but no, generally, I think it was okay. I thought it was all right. I do feel um, that it probably could have done with a bit more of a build-up. Because it essentially is just Trent goes, yeah, yeah. So there's this black book you need, and it's it's down here. So you're not going to Europe, and they, after like a moment's deliberation, they go for it. Um, but yeah, it, it it's okay. It just feels like there could have been a bit more to it there. Yeah, that's fair enough. That uh, not that there was anything wrong with it. I thought it was quite a well written scene, but the car chase at the beginning actually made me immediately think of Resident Evil Retribution. <laughs> which was not what I wanted. <laughs> I'll say that much. Give me a little bit of the shivers there. Um, but after that, you're right. You know, this sort of like it re- real introduction, I think. I don't think it was a thing in Calabango. Actually, it might have been, but the talk of White Umbrella, um, which is sort of like the, the ultimate big bad, the real big bad, the worst part of Umbrella, which again, sort of referring back to what I was saying about S.G. Perry working from information from the games, um, for people out there who perhaps don't know, White Umbrella isn't actually a thing. It, that, a lot of that is a mistranslation from Resident Evil 1, where a file, with mail from the chief of security, I think it is, ends with, uh, as it's come from someone called White Umbrella, which is just a mistranslation. But S.C. Perry sought that and kind of built this idea upon it, which is, you know, again, props to her. I kind of like that. Um, James, how do you feel about sort of the opening of Underworld? Uh, I really like the opening. Um, there's a lot, there was a lot going on. Um, the the police chase was great. I I, I really like the pacing at the beginning. Like it it uh it, it really laid out a lot of the story for you. And mm. I didn't like the contrived like Trent turning up, and then it gave me like um don't hate me internet Death Note uh vibes. Where it's like I'm so this is where I am now because reasons, you know. <laughs> and now I'm gone because reasons, you know. Mm. Um. But it was, you know, I didn't look into that too much, and I, I really liked the entry of Trent. Creep me the hell out! Like I, <laughs> when he's like, he walks in and like he has this, because the way she describes it, this grin on his face as he's moving through the plane, and everybody in the plane just looks at him, like, <laughs> like and if they have some kind of respect for him, like, but it's like a almost a fear other than John, but mm. like it's, yeah, God, that that scared me a lot, but. Um yeah, I liked the beginning. It was it was cool. Uh, I liked um I liked like them going towards the base and stuff, which I think is still the beginning ish. Yeah. Um it takes them a bit to get there, but um that we, we also filled in like so much between those points. Like so much that was happening prior and like the current mindsets of the characters, um, which was really important after what just happened. I it's really important to me because I, I wanna know what happened. After you know Raccoon City, right? Like, and how the characters felt, and we got a little bit of insight into that. Um, yeah, and then after Caliban Cove as well. But yeah, it, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the beginning. Yeah, I I agree with that. I've definitely got some things to say when we talk about characters, but you're right. Like pacing wise, there we go. Boom, in with this car chase, and then we actually get some sort of catching up to speed with these characters and sort of their mindsets and stuff. Um, and then the first, then we get into towards the base, which 
gets a little bit odd. I I felt like it felt a bit more like a Splinter Cell book than a Resident Evil book, um, because there isn't a single BOW until halfway through the book, which is a which is odd. And I think that uh, again we talked about how this is four books in two years. I imagine it was pretty much just start writing, finish writing, kind of send it to editor, go. I can't imagine these would... And I, I'm just assuming here, so I may be way off mark. I can't imagine these went through multiple revisions and drafts. Um, and I think that... Whilst you're right about the, 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 the beginning of the book affording time for characterization and stuff, it did start to really sort of trudge a bit slowly by the halfway point till we got really into the planet, which is the uh, the name of this sort of test area in the in the underground lab. These f- sort of four sections, artificially created sort of jungles and deserts and a city, etc. That's when the book really picked up and got me. Uh, but it did start to trudge before that, considering it was just. Yeah, I, I, I'm reading a Resident Evil book. I want, I want some monsters. <laughs> like, I don't want really just... I'm not too bothered about them taking out a bunch of military dudes standing around a base, but maybe that was just me. I I kind of liked it, though. Like, I mean, that's I, fair. I, I think it's because, like, I... I, I think it's because of the, the other books I've been reading as well, like human stories and stuff. Like, by the same time, like... The previous books were nothing but zombies and like BOWs and stuff. Um, so it was kind of nice to have that um, that beginning. But at the same time, I do have my problems with that beginning. Like I don't like the split. I don't like that was done with what was done with the split. But we'll get into, into more of that later on. Um, okay. Well, let's just sort of blow it wide open and just start talking about the story now. I guess uh, parts people liked and didn't like um, about, you know, I guess we'll start with the planet. Mike, what's your thoughts on the lab and the sort of setup of the premise of this sort of like segmented part with all these artificial test chambers that uh, Leon and John wind up going through and what did you like and didn't you like about that? Uh, well, I, I definitely agree with the uh, the split. That, that was the part that uh, I have the most issue with. Mm. Um, it, it made sense just not to have them be separated for the, uh, majority of the book. Um, so having, a, a David, Claire and, um, Rebecca up on the uh, surface, just it, it, they felt like they were just, uh, wasting time until there was a conclusion to the book. Mm. Um, but it, it's funny, Sai, you said, uh, <laughs> Resident Evil Retribution, um, right around chapter five, I started getting that uneasy feeling and I was like, uh, oh, this is starting to feel like, uh, Resident Evil Retribution. And uh, it, thankfully, it didn't go that same route. I think that the lab part uh, down in the planet uh, was the best part of the book, and it kind of offset the split issue that I had. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Once the action actually got going. But you're right. Like, out of those two separate, you're all completely right with that. Like, out of those two separations, there was one I was heavily more interested in, you know, than the other. Um how did you feel about that, Steve? The sort of separation of characters whilst we're on it. Yeah, it was the, the inside the lab with John and Leon was no offense to you know David, who I still love as a character, Claire and Rebecca. It, it felt like the real story. Mm. Um, we've already covered this, but like the, the top side does feel like they're just places playing Metal Gear Solid with a few umbrella guards until the plot demands they go back down. Um, inside the planet, I kind of I'm kind of tainted in a way. 
because uh, I've played Parasite Eve 2, and a big thrust of that is an underwater, Eden, uh, underground Eden Project, like, biolab-style thing where they do this kind of setup where they have different environments. So, unfortunately, my, I'm seeing that in this, in my mental images. Uh, but, but it's still cool because, you know, I could still just play the Crystal Maze theme whenever John and Leon's chaps are playing, and it, just, it works. You know, um, Jay Reston being the evil Richard O'Brien. Uh <laughs> Yep. That's Sorry. how I'm going to picture him now. Yeah, uh, but oh, I mean, there's a point in the upper, you know, in the in the top side story where they're hiding on top of some boxes in basically a storage shed, and they just fall over when some umbrella guards come in, and um, and Rebecca gets a concussion, uh, and that's like her entire character from the rest of the book onwards. Uh, it's kind of a bit. Mm, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how I feel about that. And David just seems a bit lost and aloof compared to his overly tactical self mm. in Caliban Cove. You know what? Or Caliban. I don't even know. I think that is a perfect time to take it back to James to ask about <laughs> how you felt about the uses of the characters in the splits. And you're the one that brought it up. And uh, I guess Rebecca's role in the story actually maybe that's a factor. <laughs> oh man, I hated it. <laughs> man, how did they? How could they do? my girl like that like you know we know that she's capable like i mean i i i did feel for her you know and that it was well written you know and you know i i wanted her to do well but and i know that somebody needed to take take needed to take the bullet but did it really need to be rebecca chambers you know the one in resident evil one who like is just basically basically a side character you know and they do it again in this one you know, it's, uh, I mean, Caliban Cove, even, she still is. You know, I, it would just be nice for her to be... I know she is in Resident Evil Zero, but I have just, like, a little bit more respect given to that character. But in terms of the split, yeah, it was just so weird. Because it was... it was I, I Every time a chapter came by and it was David and Claire and Rebecca, like, I was like... Ugh. Yep, I, just, I felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just let me just let me go back. Like, I... Or let them, like, go go down there. Like, I get the... Sp- like, for drama, I get the split. Like, the same same as yourself, Evil. Like, I I get the split. But let it only happen for a, a couple of chapters and then bring them down there and let them join forces. Not, like, do it in the last, like, two chapters of the book. Um, no, it was, like, three chapters, I think. But, mm. like, uh, yeah, I it just felt silly to do that. Um, because I, I didn't care about what was happening on the surface. And to be honest... It didn't feel like SD Perry cared much mm. because there were some really silly decisions that were being made by the was it the which which faction was it that was the military faction that was coming in for them? Maybe USS or something USS. like that. Um but like they were just making really silly decisions. Like leaving they knew that they knew they were still there. These folks had just like completely trashed their entire squad. Like, and then the commander is like, oh, yeah, we're just going to go home. I'm going to leave three people here, by the way. Don't worry about it. You know, it's going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Um, yeah, I, I, di- I didn't care for the, the top, the top, like the surface level stuff at all. It was nice to see David because David did do some cool ca- tactical stuff, like the thing with the door. Um, mm. Cl- Claire was literally a nothing character. Mm-hmm. Like which I think was awful, um, considering how you know how much of a, a badass she is. She got an evil chapter where she dupes a security guard and gets smashed around the head. <laughs> True. Uh, 
I did laugh. I did audibly laugh when I read that. <laughs> I remember being, yeah. Um, and then Rebecca is just, you know, she's the, you know, she's 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 the injured damsel. You know, it's like, mm. ugh. I didn't like it. Um, yeah. I, but I much preferred the stuff underground. Much preferred that. It was it was really good. The Rebecca, thing you weird. just said. Oh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Andrew Killer Berman section was fantastic. I uh, I <laughs> laughed so hard at that, and it was it was. Such yeah. a refreshing scene because everything else that happened on the surface was just uh, a trudge to get through. It was awful. Right. It's it doesn't help when you literally plot out what the te the team on the top actually did in your head was you know hide, get injured, run away from the guards, wait a bit, come back. That's basically all they did. And it was like, yeah, there's not much of an actual plot there, is there? Like you could have done all that in two chapters and then actually had them do something. I agree. It would have been really cool if maybe they found the alternative entrance and kind of come at the planet from the other side and they wind up meeting in the middle, these two teams or something. Rebecca, Rebecca's yeah. an interesting one because the book uh, it starts, one of the earliest things in the book, my, one of the earliest notes that I wrote was there's repeated references to how Rebecca is the most experienced person of the group when it comes mm. to dealing with Umbrella because of Umbrella Conspiracy and Caliban Cove. And, you know, how right you are and you don't even know it, S.T. Perry, because Resident Evil Zero hasn't happened yet. But then, and she does can sort of continue to be this focal point of the series, and you can tell that S.T. Perry cares about the character and that kind of thing. But then it's really weird that she spends the rest of the book just kind of wounded and not really doing much, which is, yeah, it's a shame. She still gets the, the, uh, the W at the end, though. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, pickpocketing Reston True. while dealing with a heavy concussion. Uh, in a defense, and I, uh, I know the top side stuff we're being a bit harsh on, but the the way that Re Rebecca is like, she's concussed, she's been shot, and she's trying to weigh up all of, trying to tot up all of her injuries in her meant in her head to then explain to the guys how to take care of her. Uh, I thought it was kind of mm. cool, like, and she's trying to like, oh god, uh, have I been crippled? Am I not going to be able to walk again and stuff like that? Admittedly, ten minutes later, after a bit a power nap, and she's like back at least on her legs. Um, but that stuff, I thought, was like, oh, God, would they go that far as to write off a character permanently? Um, you see, you see, I thought that's what they were going to do. I thought they were going to leave or they're going to like Claire was going to be left with Rebecca Chambers. And then like Claire and Rebecca, after, say, an hour or so, were going to come back. Like and then like Dave was gonna do his thing and then they're gonna come back right and then there was gonna be like some like really cool like duo damn you know uh, these badass women just coming in and like kicking butt but yeah we didn't get that she just miraculously was okay again because magic <laughs> yeah oh, the I spray <laughs> yeah that's all that she needed really uh, okay well in that case yeah, as you guys are kind of no we have kind of. Talked sort of negatively about that enough. I think perhaps we talk about the thing that we, the, the, the half of the story that we all kind of agreed was the better half then, which is the planet, this sort of segmented test grounds that Leon and John find themselves trapped in with a new character called Henry Cole, who is uh, contracted or employed by Umbrella. I'm not, I think it might be contracted, but I'm not sure if it's actually, you know, really specified. But basically, he's. He's just there to do some electrical work. He's there to, to, to sort out some cameras for the tests and, and finish hooking up the audio. Uh, and then he just winds up a part of this, which as a concept is actually awesome because when you think Umbrella, you think of scientists laughing like maniacs and men, men in suits uh, like the guy 
who may or may not be resting on the front of the book cover with dollar signs in his eyes uh, and, you know, military factions and stuff. But Umbrella would have had contract workers and builders and electricians and plumbers and engineers and, you know, Umbrella Labs would have had maintenance teams with janitors who clean the toilets and stuff. But you don't think about that. You just think about the scientists, the, the suits and the military. So that was really a really cool perspective to have as someone who's just kind of like just there to do a, just a routine electrical job and then just winds up fighting for his life. And actually, probably, for my money, and we'll get to characters really later, but uh, having one of the best arcs of the book, if not the best arc of the book. Um, yeah, it was really cool. Um, Steve, take us away. Thoughts on the planet and the interactions and the fights and stuff therein? Uh, it starts out almost like almost too easy. Despite the fact they've been separated, they managed to like round up 9% of the staff. And then uh, it all goes slowly more and more awry. And then what is it? And Reston basically clocks them ahead of time, realizes they're here to get him, and dupes Henry. And, and poor Henry, who didn't realize what his middle name was, Redshirt, had to uh, lure them in. And it's it's just it's it's really charming that he goes from oh great, so I was trying to do my boss a solid, and it turns out he's trying to kill me. <laughs> uh, oh, these guys are gonna kill me then? Oh, they're not. Sad. I'm with you guys. Uh, it's such a, well, yeah, if you're going to screw me over, I'll screw you over right back. And he's basically their, um, their eyes into the world of it all, isn't yeah. he? He's the one who explains like what these bios, these are biospheres or whatever, yeah, football field biomes are for. And then his dying breath is basically, yeah, uh, don't forget to unleash fossil. It'll wreck the place, <laughs> uh, which is awesome. You know, it's definitely a way of like sticking it to your boss. I just feel kind of bad for him because, like, as we've said, he is literally just a dude doing a job. He's not an evil scientist. He's just a person who's like, oh, that umbrella stuff seems dodgy. Oh, here's the boss. And then it all kicks mm. off. Mm. I, I, I especially like that in the brief time that the rest of the umbrella staff were locked in that cafeteria, they've apparently started a union. <laughs> because the second Reston tries any of his stuff with them, they just go, nah, boss, we quit, and leave. At least I hope they leave, because they could have been eaten by a fossil. You don't really know what happens mm. to them afterwards. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> um, Mike, thoughts on, I guess, thoughts on Henry Cole and, and the planet and all that stuff? Yeah, you guys already uh, said it. I, I think that it was awesome to see that, um, you know, in the beginning, Trent mentions that there's different sections of Umbrella, and that leads, I think, directly to there being, uh, you know, trade people that are working here, especially on a, you know, the planet that's not even up and running yet. So they're going to have those people in here uh, doing the work. And I thought Cole's uh, portrayal was was really nice. Um, and then when they go into the first um, uh, phase and they give him a gun and he doesn't like really know what he's doing, mm. uh, I, I thought that added a lot of personality to that character. And um, yeah, towards the end, uh, you, you, you took my thunder there. Uh, Nick Frewer says, uh, who says we get out of here after Reston's uh, epic speech that nobody's listening to? Um, I thought that was really <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a proper Cartman, screw you guys and going home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, what's your thoughts on uh, the concept of Henry Cole? <laughs> oh man, I love this man. He's great. <laughs> like, yeah, he, he, you know, John might be the hero of the story, but he, he's like the linchpin. He keeps it all together, mm. like this man. And I didn't think I'd care about him. Like, I thought, seriously, when, like, when Reston was like, here's my plan, by the way, you know, he's, I mean, Cole was a little bit silly to take him up on it, but the way he just replies to him, like, yeah, 
okay. Yeah, sure. Um, whatever, boss, right? It's like, it was so human. It was like, <laughs> you know, I got it. And to talk about, like, human side of it, I love, like, you know, SD Perry could have gone wild with the with the workers. She could have gone wild with them, but she didn't. She made it a very human experience. Like, where it's like, they're just all, you know, Jean and Leon went around the place and they, they didn't mess around. They just, they they piled them all up in that cafeteria and then they just stayed there. Because, like, literally, it was like, we don't get paid enough for this. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to sit here, you tell us what to do. And then Reston comes in and says his thing. And, oh, it was so funny, but so human. I could relate so hard. Um... But yeah, the the I love the the world idea, like the world that like uh element that was added to this, because um, that's when really the book started to really amp up. Yeah, I, I just I couldn't put down the book. I was constantly reading to see how they were going to do it. There were some bits that were a little bit too, like they were a bit a little bit too like wild to to believe, which is why I feel like, you know. I know I'm going back on a point, but why I feel like having Claire, Rebecca, and David there would have been made m- much more sense because it just would have made like the scenes more believable. But seeing John kick butt was great. Yeah, you know, Leon like okay, Leon did Leon things. You know, he knows how to use. Uh, is it what is what did he have his weapon? He's got a BP seventy handgun. And he knows how to yes. use it. That's about um, it. John's got hand grenades, M16s, just pure rage. Uh, you know. John knows how to cook grenades. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is a beast. I love him. Um, yeah. I, I do. We, are we talking about BOWs now? Are we talking about that later? We'll, we'll get to that, definitely. We'll, we'll do a whole section on them because there's enough originality there. We can talk about them, certainly. All right. Um, yeah. I one of the, Probably the, the best book of the book for me, uh, actually... This is weird to think about this, but the two characters that it involves are original characters, like no pre-existing video game characters. Um, and it's the moment with the bridge where the little you it's such a standard, everything's done it, little rickety wooden bridge that splits at one end and dangles off a cliff with John hanging onto it uh, while these BOWs are spitting like acid at him, essentially. Uh, and Henry Cole, who's gone from... I wouldn't say a coward, but completely thrown in at the deep end and not combat repaired whatsoever. Uh, wraps a shirt around his head and uh, <laughs> yeah. helps John up and all this. And afterwards, John describes him as looking like a mad turtle and calling him a funny guy. Like I felt actual glee that John didn't die and that they, those characters got to share that moment. And you felt sort of like the respect that, you know big badass combat guy John was feeling for this random electrician dude. Uh, if anything, I'm going to make a reference and not everyone will get, but James, you'll appreciate this. It very much reminded me of Amos and Prax. Yes. Uh, one is this big burly badass, but he's got a bit of a, you know, he's got, he's warm hearted. Let's put it that way. And then there's this guy completely out of his element, but he's doing his best. And I felt exactly the same feelings for those characters that I did for uh, those uh, characters from The Expanse. Um, beyond that, yes, we have Fossil, Leon and John, who decide, lol, let's release a giant T-Rex to destroy the facility, rather than find the self-destruct button that it, it definitely has, because it's Umbrella, because you've got to have one. Uh, and then they basically put themselves, <laughs> screw themselves over by putting themselves in harm's way of it later, which is pretty funny. Um, 
Any final thoughts? I guess we'll we'll move on, you know, talk about writing style and characters and stuff like that. Any final thoughts on the plot? And I guess, obviously, we want to talk about the epilogue. Uh, Mike, anywhere you want to take us? Yeah, there were two things that I really enjoyed. Uh, when they first get down the elevator, um, and Leon is basically still, uh, you know, like a rookie cop, and he lets John uh, take the lead, uh, which is all too happy to follow. I thought that that was a... Uh, a great detail because he's not this uh, battle hardened, uh, you know, warrior yet. He's still just only a couple days after uh, Raccoon City. So uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was a great detail. Um, I really loved uh, the character of Reston. Uh, he's just such a, a goofy bad guy and he's drinking his brandy in his office. And I mean, th- every few chapters, he's taken another few swigs. So this guy must have been hammered by the end of the book. So, um, th- there were some things that he coincidentally forgot. And then I was like, well, I mean, this guy put away, uh, you know, half a bottle of brandy. So maybe that's why he forgot a couple of elevators. But um, I-, I really enjoyed the not too serious character of Reston. Um, and-, and thinking about it, there was a detail where he just got to the planet recently. There was somebody that was supposed to be there who uh, met an untimely de- uh, demise. So all of these workers have n- probably no idea who he is, which makes sense as to why they're not going to follow him uh, after that speech that he gives in the cafeteria. So I, th- I thought that was a nice detail. Mm. Yeah, there's lots of those kind of things sprinkled in there. I've got a few definitely to get to when we get to characters. Steve, any more thoughts on plot? The fact that they do a Barry Burton and unleash the the, uh, the tyrant dinosaur monster... Yeah. And they even have second thoughts when they think time's running out and then flick the cameras and think, it's, oh, it's thrashing around, oh, it's too late. And it's just, there's something very, it's almost a Red Dwarf vibe, some of the story, <laughs> yeah. I swear. Like, I can see Rested as somewhere between Ricardo Irving and Arnold Rimmer. Uh, you know, so it's very, yeah, the, the, the slapstick in the plot helps it a lot mm. for me. And uh, I know we haven't really talked about the tests themselves, how basically one rookie cop, one uh, SWAT guy, and uh, a uh, janitor managed to like nuke the entire umbrella test. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Um, yeah, no, honestly, pretty good. Uh, the, the only thing that kind of, it's when the test is over and Fossil is about to be unleashed, and then lo and behold, the topside crew re-enter the main plot. It kind of feels like it, it kind of chugs a bit until Fossil wrecks, starts wrecking mm. things. Uh, like the whole... The whole capture of Rebecca, even though she, you know, she gets the W in the end of, of by Reston, seems a bit eh. like how how do you lose one person amidst four, you know five, and he manages to get away without it being stopped? It's a bit, a yeah, bit, bit I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, but then again, you've also got Aqua Team Hunger Force Strike Team leaving. You know, like no, nah, boss, we quit. <laughs> uh, so yeah. The comedy, I think, is stronger in this book than it really has any right to be and get away with, but it mm-hmm. does. For this plot, um, yeah. what else? Yeah, uh, I mean, like like Mike's already rightly said, the fact the main villain gets very noticeably intoxicated, not even three quarters of the way through <laughs> the block, is amazing. I love that so much. Yeah, complete agreement. Mm. Uh, James, any more final thoughts on the plot? Uh, and feel free to take us into the epilogue if you've got any thoughts. Uh, yeah, I thought <laughs> I thought they really the the releasing fast was done. Like, it was the dumbest decision, like, when they said they were going to do it. Like, especially after two days after what happened in Raccoon City. They knew what happened in Raccoon City, and they still released Fossil. Like, this huge (laughs) thing. I I don't understand why that was done. But uh, it was so funny, like, that it actually happened. And then it kind of bit them in the butt later on. And, you know, 
Um, I love the, you know, I mean, it's typical fair. It's a trope, but, you know, Fossil 8, you know, Reston, and that was Gross. like, <laughs> you know, it had to happen. Um, that scene, by the way, brutal. Like, the way she described it. Mm. Like, it was, I would, I, I, I felt that, you know, my, you know, and I was like, oh, that's disgusting, but great. Um, yeah, and then we learn about, like, who Trent is. Like, absolutely wild. <laughs> like, yeah, I really I, was not expecting it. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to wait at least another two books, like, to learn who Trent is and, like, what their connection is here. But, yeah, we learn that Trent is basically the son of the, uh, one of the first people who messed with, um, what, well, not the virus, but it was initially meant to be, like, a pharmaceutical. It's meant to be a medicinal, like, to help people. And, like, basically, Umbrella shoved them. His name was Dr. Darius, right? And his, and his, uh, and his wife? James Trenton mm. Darius. Yeah, uh, I mean, his, um, his dad, uh, his dad's name. Um, yeah, no, that, that is his dad's oh, okay, name. Cool, cool. Um... <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought I thought that was his, his that was his name. But yeah, uh, Trent's real name is Victor. Victor oh, Davis. yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, and we we learned we learned that uh, basically his family was done over because umbrella and capitalist greed, mm. and this is Trent's uh, last hurrah, his revenge, like against them, is him being this shadowy figure that is apparently in the upper echelons of umbrella or white umbrella. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, I wasn't expecting either. I knew he would he would be involved umbrella in some kind, but I didn't expect him to be so high. Because Reston talks about him, uh, like being somebody he like a peer, like somebody he yes, like is on equal like grounds with. Like, oh man, I'm very interested to see where this goes with Trent. Very well, interesting. I wonder now. Obviously, I don't know if we're gonna get much more of it because I feel like this epilogue is here because S. D. Perry thought. I might not get any more books. Oh. Uh, part of my deal was four. And that's why we got it suddenly. I'm with you. Like, I really wasn't expecting it. I love the little, just sort of thrown in randomly in the book. Oh, yeah, he's part of Umbrella and he's kind of part of White Umbrella and he's important and all this. I was like, that was nice. They just throw that in there for you to catch. And then the epilogue, yeah, just gave us the whole backstory, which is a decent enough backstory. It reminded me a little bit of the Anderson movies, perhaps, you know, the original purpose for what became the T-Virus being something uh, for the good of man and then being taken for military applications and stuff. Um, but it worked for me. It's, it's a shame that we don't get to see the end of Trent's plot. I can, you know, we've got two books after this. Uh, and then it's zero, which will take place beforehand. So we almost certainly won't get to see his plot come to fruition, which is a shame. But I'm really glad that we at least got all this info and we have a better picture because I really was expecting him just to remain a complete mystery for the whole series from what I'd heard. So this was uh, more information than I was expecting. Uh, Mike, how do you feel about... Uh, is it a bit of a plot dump at the end there? How do you feel about Trent in gen general? Yeah, I mean, uh, I said it was nice to finish with uh, Trent, uh, who and hear more about his backstory and his motivation, which definitely helps. Um, mm. Initially, when we learn about the mysterious Trent, I felt like the character was put in to fix, kind of, not plot holes, but uh, plot devices from the games. Like, right. why right. why is there a map that you have to light a fireplace to get? Maybe, maybe that's trying to fix those types of details. 
Um, and, and hearing more about his motivation, I thought was really nice, uh, even if it was done as expose and you know a, a thought before he falls to sleep. Um, I, I, I would like to see more from Trent, but uh, sadly, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, Steve, any thoughts on the epilogue? It's like the counter Wesker. He's got like he's more of a, a noble intentions for all this conspiracy and scheming. Um, I particularly like the fact that the, the main heroes don't really like him and find him insufferable. But Umbrella themselves seems something like Mr. Wolf, mm. you know, from um, oh, what's that film? The Quentin Tarantino film, this Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction is kind of how they see him as this fixer, this scary, intimidating man. And all the while, he's actually just a dude with a really big axe to grind. Uh, it's 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 different. Uh, like it's it's a shame that much like a lot of the original characters in these books, that, that I would love to have seen a, a more canonized version mm. of them. And uh, you know, yes, he works the day as ex machina in pretty much every book in some way, shape, or form. But this one is literally like, no, this is his story. This is why he's doing this. And it's um, yeah, uh, spoilers. But yeah, you, we're not going to get a decent conclusion by the end of Code Veronica. Yeah. Um, just just saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely worth the payoff. Although it, the, the only thing that's kind of infuriating is that all things said and done, that epilogue could have probably gone in any book, you know, where it's explaining his backstory. Sure, yeah. yeah. Not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that, you know, it's, it could have happened at the end of any of them. I I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm just being picky. I, it does, as I say, I, I feel like it does kind of read like it was written somewhat separately and just plonked in a little bit especially because like chapter 24 is like a page long or whatever <laughs> and then it's the epilogue it does feel like sc perry was like oh i want to throw this in now for my own character just in case this is it so i don't know again i'm working on assumptions there the dax as john called them hadn't put in an appearance or made any other sound just as well john thought Walking through a plastic forest was enough for them to handle. It was a bizarre sensation, seeing the realistic-looking trees and undergrowth, feeling the moisture in the air, but also being aware that there were no smells of earth or growing things, no wind or tiny sounds of movement, no bugs. It was a dream-like experience and an unnerving one. John was still edging forward, his gaze fixed on the crisscross of branches overhead, when Cole stopped. There's kind of a clearing here, he said. Leon turned, frowning at John. Should we skirt it? John stepped forward, peering through the seemingly random scatter of trees to the opening ahead. It was at least 50 feet across, but John would rather they go out of their way. Being dive-bombed by a pterodactyl didn't seem like fun at all. Yeah, Henry, veer right, we're going to. The rest of his words were lost as that high, warbling screech blasted through the unnatural forest and a brown-grey shape dove into the clearing and flew at them, extending talons a foot across. John saw a wingspan of eight or ten feet the leathery wings tipped with curved hooks. He saw a screaming, toothed beak and a slender, elongated skull. Flat, black eyes the size of saucers glittering. And bam, bam, bam! Holes punched through the thin flesh. Streamers of watery blood trickling down from the openings. 
the animal screamed so close that John couldn't hear the bullets, couldn't hear anything but the quavering, high-pitched shriek. And then it dropped, landing on the dark floor, pulling its wings in and walking towards them on its elbows like a bat moving jerkily through the shredded trees, shrieking in short, sharp barks of sound. Behind it, another dropped into the clearing, gusting odourless wind across them as its wide wings folded close, its long, pointed beak opening and revealing nubs of grinding teeth. This is bad, bad, bad. The lurching animal was less than five feet away, when John drew a bead on the bobbing head and the shiny round eye and pulled the trigger. Let's move on to talking about the writing style and the quality of the writing and stuff like that. Do that every time. Um, I think we have a fairly good idea of what to expect from an S.D. Perry book at this point. Um, James, you specifically pointed out the fossil killing Reston scene. Again, she's always been great at writing gore. Um she excels at that kind of thing and horror obviously is why she got the job and why she's worked in a lot of uh well several horror ips before uh this book really didn't have nearly as much gore as the previous ones in it which is kind of a shame because she's really good at it um but she's got some great turns of phrase in this book as well one particularly that i loved really early on in the book as loud as the voice of an irate god which is a brilliant brilliant turn of phrase yeah um and the only other thing that I uh, wanted to mention really offhand is uh, S.T. Perry predicting Resident Evil 4 and the bingo line. Yes. Four, year, yeah. four years before it happened on screen, entering the planet, and John says, well, Leon asks, where is everyone, I think? And John says, maybe they're all playing bingo. Like, I had to put the book down. I was like, what? <laughs> Hashtag underworld is canon. Right, now. exactly. That's where Leon got that idea from. That's, <laughs> that, that's what I was talking about, by the way, Steve. Like that thing. Oh, <laughs> right. I was like, holy moly. Like, that's the thing. That's it. Oh, my God. She knew more than she did. Ah! Exactly. Also, there's a mention of a, which I thought was interesting, of a Les Duval. Same yes. spelling as Morpheus Duval. Yeah. Four years before Dead End came out. Just a one, probably a wonderful coincidence. But it's a very strange surname to pick for a coincidence. Uh, but yeah, some funny stuff there. Uh, Mike, you said there, C. Perry's one of your favorite authors ever. So I'm just going to start with you. What do you think of the her writing style and the quality of the writing in this book? Well, you kind of already said it where uh, I think Perry does a really good job with gore. Unfortunately, there just wasn't a lot uh, to capitalize on in the uh, descriptions. Like, for example, with the uh, the spitters, they're like a skinned goat. And, and that's pretty much all we get outside of uh, <laughs> the sound of a snot clogged throat being cleared. Um, whereas if, if you look at, um, you know, the umbrella conspiracy, when she first describes a zombie, um, you know, it was shambling towards her. Uh, its face was deathly pale, except for blood smeared around its rotting lips. Flaps of dried skin hung from its sunken cheeks and on and on. So she goes into, you know, much more detail in the earlier books. Um, I, I think that detracts a little bit from the ambience of the of each room that we go into. Um, but otherwise, she describes things in enough detail uh, to give us kind of a you know a good picture of what these uh, BOWs and environments look like. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, she's under. Oh, I would always say that she's. I think she's underrated, considering that. And and maybe this is again from just for an outside perspective, who just sort of picks up whatever and. Uh, but as someone who's written a lot of tie-in books and adaptions, 
I would imagine that there's some degree of stink to that comes with that and sort of like the you know the author and and writing community perhaps rather than writing completely original stories but she's certainly no hack absolutely like she no, knows what she's not. doing she's I I would say definitely underappreciated um James how did you feel of the the writing in underworld um yeah I I really enjoyed it like she's so good at, at doing at doing uh, gore and like horror and you know even though there was some like really weird decisions that were made like when she actually bites into the cog of horror like she can't let go of it like she just keeps going and does it so well um like as i say like that that fossil scene and like the there's also another scene that stuck in my mind which is with the dax where where um john like uh, shoots into the dinner plate sized eye of one and it's like it yeah. explodes like it's like Oh, it's gross. I love it. Um, yeah, and like with the Scorps as well. But uh, I think I think the biggest thing, like, if I was going to... So, I, I mean, we've done a lot of praising for a, for a horror writing and stuff, but I do have a criticism, and, you know, it's going to... Um, we're going to go back to the spitters, because I had to actually fill in there, like, a little bit, because I couldn't get my head around her description for these animals. Like, mm. I couldn't, my brain couldn't get around it. So, basically, I made these even more terrifying, I, I feel like, even more terrifying creatures that appeared in my head. Instead of them be they'll have, like, goat bodies, but they had more, like, 90-degree um, um, kind of, like, spider-like legs, which kind of went up and down, like, kind of skittering. Oh. Exactly. Like, and they had those, like, kind of, like, uh, monkey-like piggish faces, which was spitting, you know, the, the caustic acid. Like, uh, uh, that made it more terrifying. The goats were not terrifying to me. Like, they were weird, right? <laughs> they were just weird. Um, but when I turned them into these, like, spidery, fleshy, spidery things, I was like, okay, no. Now they're terrifying. Like, that's awful. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I would agree with you, though. I certainly couldn't really drum up an actual image of them in my head from the, from the description she gave. It, it was a little confusing. Yeah, and it was a bit anemic as well, like, at that point. Because mm. like, they weren't there for very long, I don't think. Mm. Um, even though that was a really crucial scene, um, that scene, it was really great. Um, but then we got into, like, the Hunters. And then she just, she fell into her element again. Yeah. Like, it's, oh, uh, just, she's, like, she's a master at, like, uh, like, these things just being... Were they invisible? Were they hiding in shadow? I'm not sure, because, like, she was... Well, they said uh, Chameleon. Right, because yeah. uh, oh, they did, yeah. So I was imagining that they like the you know John and Leon because they were so stressed they didn't realize. And yeah, now you just reminded me they were just chameleons. But oh my god, chameleon hunters! Could you make any more of a more horrifying creature more horrifying? Like, well, what's even funnier about that again? That's kind of like another prediction because. In Resident, yeah, Evil, yeah, in Resident Evil Revelations, you have the Far Fellow Hunters, which do turn yeah. invisible. And again, this book predates that by like 15 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, and again, that's wow. another thing that I have to just come back to, where she's like, just actually thinking these things through. You look at Hunter, you go, okay, there's like a reptile version. What other reptile DNA would someone potentially put into this to maximize its potential in combat? Chameleons can blend it. It's brilliant. Like it's, oh. a, it's a really great choice. Yeah, the, and the way she like 
the way she introduces them with their like oh, she's so good at just introducing monsters mm. like i mean the bar the spitters everything even the scorpions were terrifying but the hunters that was the that was the peak for me was them uh, was her describing those uh steve thoughts on the writing style and the quality of the writing in underworld see i thought it was like Pretty solid at this time. Yeah, I will concede the the, the spitters seem to be the most confusing creature. My, my mental image is a uh, someone's took a wooloo from Pokemon, made it highly realistic, and stretched its legs out, skinned its head, and now it spits potentially dangerous, but sometimes not dangerous poison. So we've all got a slightly different mental image. Poor wooloo. As for the actual writing style, I think my main thing that I really appreciate is. That every single char- uh, every single character, when it has a main focus character, like the actual the way that the, char- the character, the story is written, it changes. Like you even get like a as if Fossil is writing the novel, and then it's uh, as if a you know four pints deep Reston is writing the novel, and so that that kind of stuff always draws me a bit more than should you say the conventional. Um, I think it adds a bit of character to it. Uh, the, the I think the only real issue is that there's a lot of boring or deus ex machina stuff that kind of happens at the top again not to go go back and like wail on what happens on top side of this story but it's just like uh, and and then they leave in a helicopter and then and then they'll rest in the desert for a bit and then and then they'll manage to round up all the guys and find a lift and they they made all this stuff kind of tiresome which is a shame because anything underground is solid it's fantastic but uh, overground, wobbling free, not so much. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I yeah, good call on the different, the shifting in perspectives. Like she managed to make it obvious very early on into each chapter which perspective it, it was, without it being like, now we're talking, looking at through John's eyes. You know, she didn't have to, you know, yeah. name the chapter after anyone or anything like that. She just, you just figure it out. And fossil in particular was a highlight where it just refers to everyone as food. You know, it, yeah, it, you could hear yeah. food over here, so it will leave this food to go and find other food. I was like, Yeah, that's quite fun, pretty morbid. Just barrel straight, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the mental image is barreling straight from its containment straight into the city sector and then just eats the hunters. <laughs> it's like, Oof. Um, though I think my standout phrase is when she's describing John and Leon overcoming the last scorps, where they literally b- cripple them, walk over and blind them, and you can just you can hear the face palm. From Reston as he's seeing his poor <laughs> creations just get completely wrecked. Uh, yeah, okay. And then what is it? The next bit of dialogue is just watching as one as the two blind ones accidentally kill each other in Mortal Kombat. Just, oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's bring it along to characters, characterization. We've touched upon this a little bit as we go, but any more thoughts for free, uh, everyone? I, I'll start off the top with at this point. David Trapp fully completes his uh, transformation into Giles from uh, Buffy. He's, that's, 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 that's clearly what she's going for. Uh, so that's what he is in my head, and that's what he'll always be now. Um, yeah, James, you said it earlier, you know. Just like in City of the Dead, she writes Leon's perspective wonderfully um, when he's sitting on the plane, especially considering in his place in this kind of team of elites as just a rookie cop who got caught up in something on his first day, and that's kind of all, all quote-unquote, he is. Uh, which, again, feels so true to his Resident Evil 2 personality. She does a great job writing Leon throughout. Um, and Rebecca also had another standout moment of characterization for me early on, which is as, they, as they're breaking into the facility, she really thinks about how the fact she doesn't actually want to be here. 
Like she knows that what they're doing is the right thing to do, and she feels like she has, she should do it. But she at one point she goes, you know, maybe the codes into the facility won't work, and we can all go home. Even though she knows it's the right thing to do, she'd rather not be there. I was like, that's a really cool human thing to put in there instead of I'm just the hero and we're going to do it. Yeah. Like actually showing that moment of sort of vulnerable thinking. Um, Mike, standout moments of characterization and favorite and least favorite characters in this book for you? Um, I just think that we had too many characters in the book. Uh, Probably I, true. Said, uh, underground, I, I really enjoyed uh, Cole's characterization. Uh, I thought he did, the, the writing for him was uh, really good for a first-time character and unfortunately mm. not one that will be uh, continuing. And uh, I just really enjoyed uh, Reston and his uh, pacing and his thinking and the way that we were able to uh, kind of see his motivations behind it as well. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Mm. Uh, Steve, any standout characters and characterization? Yeah, H Henry Cole and John, definitely. Mm. John going from someone who's overly cocky and sarcastic to actually kind of like sad and serious when Cole dies. But uh, I was kind of dread. This is a weird thing, but like, you know how there's always like a, a moment where a character gets a bit of introspection, a bit of character development, and then they're going to die. Mm. Uh, I was kind of like, please don't do that to Henry. Please don't do that to Henry. <laughs> and then like, oh, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, in 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 the long shot side of it, yeah, probably Henry Cole, uh, who doesn't even really isn't a character until the actual tests start. Not mm. really. Um, yeah, he's just someone that Reston was annoyed at because he was trying to do some camera and voice, um, yeah, voice comms, and he wasn't doing it in the order he wanted or something. Um, yeah, that probably poor Henry. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, James, standout characters and moments of characterization. Uh, Kamiya, the Japanese businessman. <laughs> I'm coming, no less. Yeah. Um, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I love Cole so much, but John, like, was fantastic in this. Uh, just, you know, Le Leon felt like a side character, and that was okay. You know, because, mm. like, he also had his moments, but John... Do you know why I thought they were going to do I thought I thought she was going to do that typical thing where you're going to make him the hero, and then he was going to fall. You know, but right. that, that didn't happen. And I was so happy that it didn't. Because <laughs> he's so cool of a character. Mm. But Cole, like, oh man, that hero ending for him. Like, I, you know, and him like saying that, okay, this is how it's going to end. And I'm okay with that. That's like, that from being just this random dude in the middle of a room who was just doing wires, trying to connect up audio and cams for Reston, to turning into this hero who gave his life like to take down umbrella is what we like to see <laughs> and you know it was it was great because that that in in its essence is what we're we're constantly being introduced to in resident evil are characters that um you wouldn't seemingly expect other than like stars and bsaa but you wouldn't expect to be heroes and they become heroes because of the story and because of what happens mm. and because of the humanity that they're surrounded by. Yeah, and like SD Perry captures that so great. That's, yes. Yeah. Well said, definitely. Completely agree with that. Uh, so, on the flip side, then, let's talk about some beasties. Uh, any thoughts on favorite and least favorite BOWs? Um, obviously, we've talked about it when we talked about covers, but you have to wonder when this book came out, uh, did the fans go, there's no zombies in this, it's not Resident Evil, in the same way they did with RE4 and with Seven and Village? Uh, but there you go. It's, it's a little bit odd in retrospect that we don't encounter a single zombie in a Resident Evil book, but 
I think it's fine without, to be honest. Maybe I would have peppered, peppered them in a little bit early on, just so it wasn't no BOWs up to the halfway point before we get to the DAX. Uh, but that's that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Um, I think, as with the rest of these books, there's not so much you can write about combat that's not just how quickly are we going to tear through this monster. We introduce what the monster looks like and what it can do, and then they just fire at it until it's dead, usually, which is, you know, it's fine. It is what it is. Um, so, for example, I thought in this, the Scorps were pretty pathetic. As Steve has just described, they wind up just being blinded and killing each other. Uh, but on the other end of it, whilst the Spitters were hard to visualise, I did actually get an element of threat them for, from them. It did feel quite tense, so that was cool. Um, and And again... Hunters are hunters. They're always scary. So, <laughs> uh, Steve, standout POWs and not so much. Uh, it, the Scorpus for their, uh, you know, their, their team killing, and and it's got to be fossil, hasn't it? Like the, the, uh, the my mental image is basically a dragonborn from D and D, but tyrant color scheme with maybe an exposed heart somewhere, <laughs> and all it wants to do is walk and eat. But it also has uh, clearly got some form of sapience if it has things it wants to do. Um, you know. Uh, the the only thing that kind of makes me a bit sad is that it, it you know it's probably gonna get shot on the surface and it was probably a really awesome fight with some USS guys we don't really get the end yeah. of it just buggered off up a lift eating a you know a, a rest and take a rest and snack yeah. uh, you know a bit of rest and jerky maybe a bit of alcohol in there, <laughs> uh, you know it, I mean it was a bit of a jerky. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, but yeah, now the um, the Dax and the Spitters. I kind of I, I like the idea that we don't fully we can't fully grasp what a Spitter looks like. I love that, but the same token, all they do is spit some kind of goo that apparently can be beaten by a t-shirt. <laughs> Fair. Fair yeah, and and the Dax just sound like you know winged, airborne, annoying things. The Resident Evil game, you got to have yeah. some kind of <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, them things that pop out of people's heads in RE5, that's what I saw, but with, like, mm. bat wings. So, yeah, we're all right, Fair I guess. Uh, yeah, crap scorps and fossils for me. Do you know, actually, I, I do have a bit of love for how crap the scorps were, because it does... Yeah! It, it's fun to see what happens when you develop a really terrible BOW, because Reston's like, ha, 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 and then goes, oh. <laughs> like, that's kind of yeah, fun. it can repair itself. But that's about all it can yeah, do. Pretty much. Uh, James, standout BOWs for, for good and for bad. Just like just to touch on the Scorps again, like they had a really cool ability. They could heal themselves. Like, but you know, for some reason Reston thought they weren't gonna hit get hit on the head. <laughs> you know, the center point of a scorpion, he didn't think that was where they were gonna get hit. Oh silly. Yeah, I thought like the Dax weren't um the Dax weren't really a threat again. Reston and uh, the person that came before him that I can't remember the name of um, didn't think that because he says they only attack in clearings so they created a forest okay yeah, that's true actually why did you do that like you know um, and apparently there was only like a couple of clearings it's like oh you silly men you silly umbrella men mm-hmm. um, I think you know, clearly, like, the Hunters are fantastic, and they terrified me, and also they killed our favorite character, right? But, um, you know, my interpretation of the Spitters, like, really creeped me out, <laughs> to the point that I had to kind of put the, the chapter down for a second. Like, I need to find a picture to, like, reference, like, what I mean, right? But, ah, oh, they just, the way they just 
they skittered with their goat bodies and their freak, like evil said earlier on their their like phlegmy like bleh, you know when they spat it's disgusting um but i mean you know fossil can't be beat i love that the i love that the chapters that you gave like she gave him a chapter or them a chapter like that you got to kind of see the mind of a sentient like eating machine mm. like and it was you know i mean it was a bit silly where it was like oh food closer must go food eat you know when it was uh trying to get through to the to the folks in the in the, yeah, the forest world i didn't kind of get that because it was almost through i mean literally all they needed to do was kick down that door yeah and they were through but yeah it was I want to see. I know you know the Resident Evil community is going to be mad about it. I want to see dinosaurs in Resident Evil, guys. Resident like, Evil Six kind of has a T Rex. Kind of, kind but, of. But I bring back fossil hashtag. Bring back fossil. <laughs> uh, bring you know we don't know where he is. Um, you know the wiki um, describes him as having like a Tyrannosaurus humanoid like hybrid. Just to give you guys an idea of what they look like. And you know what? That's terrifying, man. Mm. Like that's awful. And this thing is like ten foot tall. Like I think it was like weighs like two tons or something. Like oh, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Basically, I, we need to cross over Resident Evil Dino Crisis. Yes, please. Uh, uh, Dino Crisis <laughs> remake. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, standouts: Hunters, Fossil, and with my interpretation of Spitters. Like it goes in that. It goes in that order. Fair. Uh, Mike, what do you feel about the BOWs in this book? I, I thought that it was uh, another feat for uh, Perry to be predicting the future, right? So they, they talk about uh, Dax, uh, and they describe them as being bats, right? So we see bats in Resident Evil Zero, which hadn't come out at the time. Uh, we see scorpions, which was also in Zero. Uh, so I, I <laughs> thought it was really cool that she was able to kind of predict the future on a number of these uh, different details that she had. Uh, but fossil, fossil, yeah, it has to be the the standout. I love the name that they had for it. And as it's brought up throughout the story, uh, I keep picturing this uh, gigantic, uh, you know, dinosaur tyrant that's going to be at the end of the book. And all I could picture was the uh, the big bad from Gaiden as it was walking around. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was really cool. And I enjoyed the fossil chapter. Uh, the last line being, uh, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, fossil wanted, fossil was hungry. I thought it was a great primitive way to convey that message, and it just had one purpose, and that was to to feed. Mm. All right, cool. Before we get to conclusions, uh, let's try and talk about this book, where it sits in kind of like the series. So how it feels as a sequel to Caliban Cove, which it kind of is, you know, being the other original story. How it feels as part of the series where we're at with four books uh, and i guess how we feel knowing that this is kind of the last original series uh, original story uh, in the periverse uh, steve how do you feel about it in sort of context of the books that we've got so far uh when i'm told that it was originally a four book run it doesn't feel like a conclusion you know it doesn't feel mm. very conclusive at all but which is you know it's nice we get some backstory on its its central new character uh, and that's solid. The adventure itself, one half is really fun and kind of great. Uh, the, the other half is kind of dreary, which is a shame because the characters involved in it, I actually, I really like Claire Redfield. I really like Rebecca Chambers. Hell, David Trapp's a bit of all right. Uh, and they kind of, 
not fun. They're kind of boring, mm. um, which is a shame. But in, in the same way that David was like the, the principal of the original characters in Calvin Cove, John is this time. So it's fine. You know, give them the, the, uh, the kind of limelight that they didn't get in the previous novel. Yeah, that's uh, fair. As for where we're headed, I, uh, I call me cynical, but I feel like because of the nature of retcons that are going to have to come in for Nemesis and Code Veronica, we're going to have um, uh, a less fun time as a result. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's, it is a shame that we won't get conclusions. I'm going to have to assume that this is it for John and David uh, appearance-wise. I don't... Again, I haven't read the Nemesis adaption, and I haven't read the Code Veronica adaption in a long time. I don't think they're randomly inserted into those from, from what I know, but who knows? But I, I, it's a shame that that's kind of... I mean, if they are, if they great. are great, but I don't, I don't I expect, don't expect them to be. Right, uh, that's exactly it. I don't expect them to be, which is a shame, because I would like to see a conclusion for those characters. And to a certain degree, Trent, like I could probably live without it. I, I, I'd like that we've got the knowledge of who he is. Uh, but yeah, it is a shame, isn't it? Yeah, um, to, to sum it up then, Underworld's a pretty good novel. Doesn't feel like the conclusion. Doesn't it? Just it feels like a nice middle middle of the road adventure with, unfortunately, a bit of fluff on top. Mm. Uh, James, how do you feel about uh, Underworld, where it sits in the the, the series at this point, and uh, and I suppose your conclusion as well? Uh, well, knowing knowing this might be like the last chance we see John. Um... And David, it kind of makes it's bittersweet. It kind of makes me sad, especially since like the story's there. You know, they have one book. There are two more books to get. You know, the progression is there. They could go and do it, but I mean, we probably won't get that, or somebody else will pick up that baton. Um, I know I'm like I'm not spoken about the top like half like what the the surface level stuff at all. But to be honest, it was unforgettable. Claire was not Claire Redfield in my opinion. Mm. Like she was just a throwaway character um it was cool like david was pretty much the the key player and you know since we know what claire rebecca and rebecca are capable of it's kind of upsetting to see that but the rest of the the rest of the book was fantastic i mm. loved like and it, I, it, you know steve said earlier on it was it was full of comedy because john was the comedy like he he brought it together he, he was that glue um, but also seriousness and great horror writing and gore writing. And, um, if like, if I was going to, like, as a conclusion, if I was going to give it like a rating, um, I think, I think the, the lab stuff really carries it, um, yeah. quite hard. And I, I think it's like probably my favorite book because of that. Like I, I, I the ones I've read. Um, because I just love the, the the human interaction so much, and I also love the beginning. I really did love the beginning. Seeing uh, another thing I wanted to mention is Rebecca, like being a little bit sassy, which was nice to see. Like towards John, like her saying, uh, "Like I can't swear, but um, you know, <laughs> you know," she she says to John that um, she what you know don't fall or something. I don't want to pick your you know up again or something like that. Um, and it's like it was so funny because John like gives you got immediately with that interaction you got who John was mm. you know and who Rebecca was and what their relationship was but do we ever see that grow? no we don't <laughs> and I wanted it to yeah it's, <laughs> uh, it's a shame it really is um, yeah. I but, but it's oh, sorry, it, go on. 
sorry. Yeah. Uh, just conclusion. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a great it's a great book, and anyone should read it. Like, if you're a Resident Evil fan, you should read it. It's got no zombies in it, but I don't think that is a a huge like is a huge dip for the for the book. Mm. I think that if someone were to jump in here, they might maybe struggle with a little bit of the pacing, which I think was a problem with Calabanco, from what I remember as well. Mm. Is that it does take a while before it might potentially completely grip you. At the beginning, is good. It does lull for a while for me. Um, but as you say, when we get to the lab, I haven't really said this before, I thought the idea of the planet is underground sort of artificial forest and all that stuff is... It's fine. Like, it's been done. It's pretty simple. But the way that it's written is quite fun and engaging, as you said. Um... I thought maybe that I was always going to gravitate towards the adaptions because, you know, I've got a fondness for the stories that are being adapted, of course. And I think I would really love to give all four of these books to someone who knows nothing about Resident Evil. Have them read them all and then say, pick the two which you think are based on video games and the two that aren't. Because I think the structures of Caliban Cove and Underworld feel very different to the other two. Not that that's a bad thing. I just think they stand out very differently. Um, so it's nice to have that variation. And, and I think I I wouldn't say this is quite at the, at the top, but after talking about it with you guys, it's actually thinking about it, I think it is better than I gave it credit for. It is, it's definitely up there. Um, yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. It's unfortunate that it doesn't quite re- reach a full conclusion with some of these characters and some of the plot, plot strands that are in it, unfortunately. But as a standalone thing, it's yeah, it's good fun. Uh, Mike, what are your final thoughts on Resident Evil Underworld and sort of where it belongs as part of the Perryverse? Well, I had read the book when it first came out, so that was, what, 21 years ago? And um, (laughs) I remember absolutely loving it. And uh, what I completely forgot about was everything that happened on the surface. Like, so when I just reread this in December, I was like, oh my gosh, there's way more happening up here. Well, not really. Uh, there's more of the book dedicated to that uh, mm-hmm. that I had just completely forgot about. Uh, but the, the lab section, the underground part is just so good. Uh, and, and that's what I remember loving about the book. So uh, this is definitely one of the better ones. If I were going to give it a rating, uh, maybe three out of five, four out of five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Cool. Well, nothing else remains for me but to thank our contributors, our patrons and our listeners. Join the first Aid Spray Discord server to become part of our community and hear the show early and unedited. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and more. All of these links and all of our content can be found at fasprayPod.com. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcasting apps. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review where you can and spread the good word. Don't forget you can support the show by picking up some merch or at patreon.com forward slash FASpraypod for as little as $1 a month. On our next episode, we focus on one of the series' most beloved and most missed characters as we look at the career of the super cop and master of unlocking. It's profile, Jill Valentine. Thank you to the panel. You can follow all the Pueblo people individually. I'm at Saniac underscore one, two, three. Steve is at FB. Steve was taken. James is at Moist Owler OFF. And Mike is at Evil Deadites. And finally, thank you for listening and have a good week.
actually, I won. I want to go. Like, I want to. I want. I want to. I don't want one of the big old. You want a pygmy you know, goat? I don't want a pygmy goat. I want just the smaller version. You know, I want the one point five. The one that was scrapped before it came out, and then they exactly. went back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Someone has to do it, didn't they? <laughs> you want? You're gonna call it Elsa, yeah? I. <laughs> there it is. Sorry, I was dumb. <laughs>